1: Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. Uh, This week, we'll be talking about MLS is back, and it actually is back this week. We'll be talking a little bit about the uh, Challenge Cup when it comes to NWSL. Mourinho, you can't go wrong with talking about a little Jose and his uh, comments about a lot of things, including VAR. Manchester United, speaking of being back and big and bold again, uh, Bayern Munich, Christian Pulisic, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, July 6th of the year 2020? I am doing uh, very, very well. You, uh, you look great, and I know some people watch this show, some people listen to it, so I, for the people that are just listening to it, uh, I will let you know that I'm looking at uh, the great David Mossy and the, the usual uh, attire when it comes to his headwear is not there. You are wearing a, a beautiful hat here, Moss. So we know that you're partial to the Izod's, uh, or to the, uh, what do you call it? Um, what's the? Lacoste. Lacoste, excuse me, Lacoste type of hats. This one has some sort of uh, insignia on the top here, and it's a little, it's actually, to be quite honest, it's, it's a whole lot nicer than the, uh, than the previous hats that we've seen. You.
2: What are you wearing? My mother sent me a package recently, and included in that package was this hat Uh, which she bought. It is actually a Novak Djokovic hat. Uh, He is my favorite tennis player, but right now is an odd time to be sporting a Djokovic hat. He is getting roasted for having organized a tournament, which led to a lot of coronavirus uh, positive tests. So
0: uh, I'm
2: getting looks on the street as if I was wearing like an OJ Simpson hat.
1: Yeah, look at you just courting controversy just with what you're wearing on your head. Uh, It's a pretty hat. It's got a nice little uh, logo up there for people that can't see it, but We'll, so obviously this is out of uh, respect and love for your mom. Everybody, I think, gets that. But what's the statute of limitations? Like how long do you have to keep wearing this before you feel like you have satisfied a, a mother-son type of you know, relationship and responsibility when it comes to a gift?
2: Uh, let me put it this way. I'm planning a trip to the mall in the next couple of days. Uh, I am going to go to a Lacoste store and buy a new Lacoste hat because my other one is very old. And once I make that purchase, this will be downgraded to number two in the rotation, so you might not see it as often. In the All
1: right, well, that's good. I look. I I would love to be a fly on the wall when you walk into the Lacoste store and uh, and and are looking for for hats. I I don't think that you're going to find or you're going to pick something that's out of your uh, you know <laughs> your comfort zone, but. I I hope that you do. I would love to see you in something uh, different. You watching anything out there? I know we talk a lot about uh, what we are watching and we've talked over the last couple of months about how we're we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. But anything out there that's uh, tickling your fancy? A lot
2: of HBO. Yeah. Uh, We're three episodes into Perry Mason. I am enjoying it very much so far. We're taping this on a Monday. Tonight, another episode of I May Destroy, which is another HBO show I'm really enjoying. I am uh, often running on the Golden State Killer documentary. We are two episodes into that. I did watch a very disturbing documentary last week on HBO called Welcome to Chechnya, which we don't have to dwell on too much because it's, it's really dark, dark stuff. Uh, but so HBO kind of carrying me along right now.
1: So uh, as, as people that have listened and and watched over the years know, my, my hard and fast rule is I don't watch anything until it's completely done so that I can binge it from start to finish. My family was off and running and binging uh have you heard of this uh stranger things you ever heard of this show stranger things oh yeah i did not participate in that and i kind of felt a little left out being in the other room uh and and you know sticking to my principles when it comes to something like that they binged it all the way up to wherever we are right now and i heard all of the the uh the rocking and rolling and screaming and yelling and all that i did hear the uh, the '80s part that is is very prominent, evidently in this in this show, and so much so that there was a point the other day where I heard the Neutron Dance from the Pointer Sisters, which is an '80s song, uh, twice in one day in completely different contexts. One of them was actually in uh, in this show that was wafting up the the sound that was coming up from downstairs. But I was a little jealous of the communal type of thing with, with my family. And so we wanted to find something to watch together that once again, at least fulfilled my criteria of being, uh, of starting and finishing. And so last night we embarked on what's it called? Lost. You ever heard of this show lost Mossy? Sure. <laughs> so, uh, we're, we're, we're starting to get into, uh, the lost thing. We're uh, about a, I, I would think a, a season in, in right now. It's a very, very, it, it's, it's entertaining. It's interesting. I find myself thinking that even in the first season at a couple of points, it's already jumped the shark. Um, but then I hold back and, and I, I say, okay, I'm going to give it a little bit, little bit longer. But it did hold my attention and my family's attention. So that's what we're going to be uh, doing going forward.
2: Along those lines, I am thinking of addressing one of the great holes in my TV watching resume. Ooh. I am strongly considering binging Deadwood which is a show I've never seen. Which some people That's a put Western, up there with right? the Sopranos. Thing? Correct. Some people put put up there with the Sopranos and The Wire and the HBO canon. And uh, it's always bugged me that I, I haven't been able to have an opinion on that show because I never watched it. So I'm strongly considering the next few weeks binging that show.
1: Well, I'm sure the Deadwood fans out there and the detractors out there will let you know if this is something you should or, uh, or shouldn't do. And I will let you know how the, uh, how the Lost progresses, if I can make it to the – I don't know how many seasons Lost is, but I, I know it was a very successful show. And it uh, has already kept my attention. I will, I will say that. Uh, all right, listen, enough about what we, are, uh, what we are watching. we got a full show of all sorts of stuff that's going on right now when it comes to soccer, domestically, internationally, on the field, off the field, plenty to get to. Moss, you ready to light like this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every time on this show in normal circumstances, in uh, what was once normal life, I would start with my State of the Union. Uh, we, are, we, have, we have said we're not going to do that while we're going uh, through this, and we're just going to dive right into it. And the news this week, uh, it's not news, but it is what needs to be talked about. and has to be talked about because this is a big week for American soccer, Canadian soccer, uh, and soccer in general, because Major League Soccer is coming back online in the form of the MLS's back tournament down in Orlando. And seeing the way that people have reacted and seeing how this has all come together, Mossy, you know, I, I, I think I should start out with saying that, first off, it's, it's fascinating to see the way that this is being perceived, both internally by people that are involved in it, people externally, uh, people within the soccer community, people outside of the soccer community, and people, to be quite honest, that are looking at it uh, and are curious uh, and interested to see how this is going to go. I, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you how it is going to go. But as I said, MLS returns this week in the form of the bubble in Orlando that we've talked about so much. All 26 teams competing in the month-long World Cup-style tournament. It all kicks off on uh, Wednesday. Uh, Those of us over at Fox uh, will have our part. Our, Our part kicks off on Saturday. ESPN, our friends and colleagues over there, will kick it off on Wednesday. I think it bears repeating that this isn't about finding a fair or an easy or ideal situation. This is simply about making the very best of a very bad situation. And yes, my livelihood is soccer, as is yours, Mossy, as are a lot of the people that, uh, that we work with, in that we have a vested interest in seeing soccer succeed at all levels, not just the MLS's back tournament, whether it's NWSL, men's, women's, all different levels, different leagues and teams are coming back in different ways as it goes forward. And we have a vested interest in seeing that uh, succeed. But not at the expense of people's health. It's not with blind faith. It's not with any type of willful ignorance. Because there is risk, absolutely. And everyone must decide what that risk is and what the acceptable risk is for them. And there are people, Mossy, that I have seen out there, and it's just, it's, you know, it's just kind of human uh, that are almost hate watching what is, what is going on or what is about to happen and almost rooting to see the return of soccer fail. And the sobering reality is that this is about surviving and this is an attempt to limit the inevitable damage to our leagues and to our sport that we have talked about now for a number of, uh, of months. So this is, this is an all hands on deck type of moment because we've said this before soccer is not an essential service and a future of soccer is not promised to any of us but there are a lot of people out there mossy in our industry that don't even kick a ball that depend either directly or indirectly on soccer and look many have lost jobs many have been furloughed many have taken salary cu- uh, cuts out there and pro soccer is not a charity we can talk about billionaires and millionaires all we want but The people who are involved in the business of professional soccer are in it because it is a business. You know, they may love it and they may have passion about it, but it's not a charity. It is a business. And the business of soccer right now is in a moment of crisis. And so I'll I'll end it with this, Masi, I'll throw over to you. I want to thank, I want to thank all of the men and women out there, both on and off the field, because there's a lot of people that aren't going to get attention or the credit that they deserve that have set up these returns when it comes to soccer and uh, have made the decision that they are willing to risk and they are willing to go down either to Orlando or to Utah or in market, if you're coming back in market, a lot of people that aren't the players that are gonna get the attention, uh, that deserve as much credit and in many times more uh, credit for what they are doing because they are answering a call. And in doing so, they are helping the game that we love survive and so I'm, I'm thankful that so many think that the game is worth that risk uh, and are doing it. And uh, I hope that it goes well. I think all of us are keeping our fingers crossed that it goes well and that people are safe. And whether it's MLS is back or the continuation of the Challenge Cup uh, for NWSL or USL coming back or anything coming back online in all sports, but we're talking about soccer right now, we hope that it goes back with the least amount of – issues and challenges uh, that we face. But this is the great unknown. We have no idea how it's, uh, how it's going to play out. But a referee is going to blow a whistle on Wednesday, Mossy. And this MLS is back tournament is going to start. And we just don't know how it's going to end. Mossy, questions, comments, concerns out there?
2: Well, a couple of bits of news broke this morning. Carlos Vela has opted out of this tournament. He's going to stay with his pregnant wife. And also, one game has been postponed already. FC Dallas, Vancouver, several FC Dallas players have tested positive. So they're in no condition to play a game this Thursday. Listen, my approach here is until I hear otherwise, I'm going to assume this tournament is going to take place. I recognize there's a whole separate conversation going on about Uh, the viability of this tournament and I think it's an important conversation but I have nothing useful to contribute to it so I'm just going to focus on these soccer related stories and 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 talk about that but it's not because I don't recognize that there's this whole other separate conversation going on and as far as the soccer end of it listen we're only two games into the season so I think you revert back to what the storylines were going into the campaign which for me was this uh, incredible influx of Liga MX stars moving to MLS, the Rodolfo Pizarro's, the Edinson Flores, the Lucas Cavallini's, the Lucas Zalarayans. Uh, now Jurgen Dahm, uh, Osvaldo Alaniz. Uh, You had some interesting new coaches entering the league, uh, Thierry Henry, Tab Ramos, Ronnie Dela. We have Yap Stam now in Cincinnati. Yep. You have Chicharito, obviously. You have the whole LA Galaxy, LAFC dynamic. You have Atlanta adjusting to life without Joseph Martinez. And you have defending champion Seattle looking like they might even be even better this year, thanks to the addition of my buddy, João Paulo, along with obviously Jordan Morris and Rui Diaz and Lodero and company. So, uh, there's a lot of fun stuff on the field, rivalry games. So I am looking forward to this tournament. And like you, I, I hope it goes off without any great incident.
1: Yeah, and and neither of us or, or any of us out there are are blind to the risks and the realities out there. And yes, we, I, I am jacked up to be able to see Major League Soccer uh, again, and obviously to work when it comes to what we are doing uh, with Fox. As uh, as it relates to Carlos Vela, this is not necessarily a surprise. This has been rumored a long time. His wife is pregnant. And it, and it has to be said that the option exists for players to opt out of this tournament uh, for whatever reason that they feel. There are players that are in similar situations that are in Florida. There are players that are you know, compromised when it comes to their health. That are in Florida. There are certainly players that are making a whole lot less money uh, than Carlos Vela. That uh, that are in Florida. In, in Florida, everybody has got to make their own their own decision uh, as to you know what the risk is and how much of that risk is worth uh, taking in order to do something to uh, something like this. It sucks that the number one player. Uh, and the biggest star in Major League Soccer is not, going to, is not going to be there. But as you said, there's plenty of other wonderful players to see in this, in this unique uh, type of setting. The production, which we've talked about a lot over the last couple of months, uh, is going to be different because of the circumstances and the location down there in Orlando. Not being in an actual home stadium, uh, and not even being in a traditional type of stadium setting, ESPN, uh, there's a bunch of articles out there. Uh, they're going to they're gonna do a great job because they're spending a lot of money, uh, lots of cameras, lots of microphones. You're going to get access the likes of which we haven't had even in normal times. Uh, but I think there's also going to be a compare and contrast with how ESPN does their production of it, how we do it over at Fox. And keep in mind, we are taking their their feed in terms of the uh, the pictures that we are taking, but you know everybody does it. Everybody does it in a uh, in a different way, and I'll be really interested to see the reaction of people once again relative to what has happened with over in Europe and, and obviously Bundesliga, EPL, all the different leagues, even what's happened with NWSL in a in a much more yeah they're in a bubble, but they're also playing in a, a smaller type of stadium setting, and the you know the virtual type of reality and graphics and pictures and optics that ESPN is going to have. What, uh, if any, type of enhanced uh, either audio or, uh, or video things that they, uh, bells and whistles that they throw, throw on because you know, it's an opportunity and that compare and contrast, uh, it will happen. Then there's the, you know, all of the talk off the field of, like you said, Mossy, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right way to do it? And ultimately how this is going to progress. The players are in a bubble. Is, can that bubble be punctured? Absolutely, okay? But I do think that there is, there is a, a part of me that looks at it and says, you know, these, as we said, it's not without risk, but they are in a bubble where they are tested on a continual basis much more so than 99.99999% of the people that are out or returning to the workforce are. They are, once again, in that bubble. And so there is a controlled element of who is in there. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but it is a controlled element. By the way, much more than 99.999% of the people returning to the, to the workforce. They are exposed and they are uh, privy to medical uh, help uh, on-site, Uh, the likes of which 99.9% of the people out there aren't uh, availed of. So all of that is to say that I do believe that the protocols that have been in place are going to protect players, but it could very easily go sideways. I don't want it to, and I don't think anybody wants it to, but I think that in in a risky proposition, MLS has done everything from their side to make these men and women. And it's men and women. Once again, it's not just the players on the field. It's everybody that's involved. Be as safe as possible with establishing, the, establishing those protocols and you know, hedging your bets. And people will say, well, it's, it's just soccer. Yeah, it is. Okay. And in the greater scheme of things, it means nothing. But even in the scheme of things, when it comes to sports, we know that soccer is very low in terms of uh, relative to other sports out there. And MLS, when it just, and it's just soccer, while it may be at the top, all those other leagues that are coming back online, okay, relative to MLS soccer are different. So as I, as I said before, I think about all the people that have chosen soccer, and you can say you should have chosen something else, but have chosen soccer to be their, their business and their livelihood, it's how they feed themselves, it's how they feed families, directly or indirectly, that you know, this is our industry, and this is an industry in crisis right now, and doing things in order to have that industry at some point in the future return to whatever new normal it is and get back on track moving forward. I don't think that you can fault people for wanting to do that. Just because you don't like soccer, you don't like sports, or just because we all admit that it's it, it pales in comparison of, uh, of importance to other things out there doesn't mean that doing things in your own self-interest to help you and your chosen vocation, your chosen industry succeed and survive, as I said, in this moment, I think that that's human. I think that that, I think that that is expected. And I hope, as I said, that uh, we get to a place where everybody is back playing in their home markets and the people are safe. But you know, Florida, the way you look at Florida right now, it's gonna be very, very interesting. There's gonna be a lot to talk about as we go uh, forward. All right, anyway, that starts on Wednesday, as I said, on ESPN. Our coverage starts on Saturday on Big Fox. Yes, we got Atlanta versus the Red Bulls. That is at uh, eight o'clock Eastern time on Big Fox, Big Fox, Big Fox. And then we got the hell is real, Derby, 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 whatever you want to call it, it's hell is real. Cincy versus Columbus, also on uh, the 11th of July, which is Saturday at 10:30 Eastern Time on FS1. And you mentioned, I think, I think you touched on Jurgen Dom uh, a little earlier. Signings are still happening. Uh, most of the players that are signed can and will participate in this tournament. Not all of them, but there are some people out there that are looking at this as an opportunity. And doing some things interesting, very very interesting things when it comes to signing players. Jurgen Dom, uh, Mexican international, a player that shall we say has not lived up to the hype, but still a quality player and an interesting addition when it comes to a team like Atlanta, which is looking for that kind of stuff. Mossy.
2: Well, the only thing I'll add is they did tweak the format of the tournament since yep. we last spoke. Uh, group A has six teams. Groups B through F have four teams each. And initially, it was going to be the top two from each group that would advance. They've tweaked that where the third place team in group A now also automatically advances to the knockout stage. And then the three next highest ranked teams in the group stage also advance, which will give you 16, Uh, a a change that makes sense. People flagged that right away. They said, wait a minute, that's not right. Why does a group with six only get two, same as groups with four? I will be curious to see if teams are going to buy into the tournament aspect of this tournament. I mean, is is a club going to go into its last group game saying, well, we only need a draw to advance, so let's play for a draw? Or... Are they just going to play their three games straight up and whatever happens happens if, and if they don't advance, frankly, they're happy to get out of there and go home and they're not going to be bothered. But.
1: Well, I I think there has to be a a short term and long-term philosophy when you are playing this tournament, because as you mentioned, let's say you get to that third game and Let's say you play to advance in the tournament. That's all fine and well. We know there's a million-one prize money, and there's the carrot of, of going directly to uh, CONCACAF Champions League, uh, assuring a CONCACAF Champions uh, League spot. But keep in mind also that group stage counts to your regular season. And look, this in, if it goes well or if it doesn't go well, it's still going to start and end. And then teams are going to theoretically go back to their home markets, and the season is going to continue, and then there's going to be playoffs, and then there's going to be an MLS Cup. Uh, we know not in front of uh, fans, at least for the foreseeable, foreseeable future. But your group stage results will matter. And so if you look at it as, let's just get to the next round, that's, that's all fine and well, but you're leaving points on the table, possibly. If you don't get that three points, or if you only get one of the potential three points, when you could have had three, who knows at the end, maybe those two points are the ones that leave you out of the playoffs. So I think, yes, you have to think about it in terms of a tournament, but you also have to think about possibly amassing, you know, for example, Minnesota United, which started off the the, the, uh, the season great and sitting, at, sitting in first place, they could come out of this tournament, losing all three games and being right back at the bottom of the standings, still with plenty of games to go. But... I think you really have to i I don't think that you're you're necessarily looking at this with the traditional type of tournament mentality that teams have in a world cup uh, World cup setting that's a good thing though that is a good thing because you're you're almost battling on two fronts and that I think is going to increase the competition and I think it's going to to make teams do things that they otherwise wouldn't do in a tournament setting no
2: i agree uh, yeah i think the the fact that the group games count to the Count towards the regular season and the knockout games don't sort of undermines that traditional tournament mentality. Absolutely, I agree with
1: you. And you know, I, I, and I'm, we'll finish it here as we start watching these. And I already, I already have some some Zoom drinks uh, in in line this week uh, in the games and the nights that we're not doing anything from Fox. So I will be watching it with a a healthy beverage. Healthy, not that it's good for you, but healthy in terms of amount. Uh, And I will be looking at this, and I think it is fair to hold these players, hold these teams, hold these organizations to account, despite the unique uh, and very, very different and challenging circumstances uh, that they are in. And we are going to find out who is able to adapt, who is able to be flexible. And it might be teams that in normal days, we never thought about. And so if If a team like Orlando just all of a sudden comes out of it and is this revelation within this tournament, MLS is back tournament setting, does that mean then that they have turned a corner or is this just this anomaly? But I do think that it is fair to expect teams that are good to be good in this setting and to adjust. The reason why you are good is because you have obviously good players, but you also have a good staff that prepares you. And I think that there will be teams that are licking their chops for the opportunity in a new setting to almost add to their their legacy. So if if LAFC, by the way, without Carlos Vela and Bob Bradley come in and they are the cream of the crop again, that's that's another feather in the cap of what they are doing. And it deserves it deserves praise. Likewise, if someone like LAFC comes in and stinks up the joint for for whatever reason. No, they deserve the criticism and they deserve to be looked at as they weren't prepared. And I think it's, I think it'll be too easy to say, yeah, but this is, you know, this is just this different unique challenge. No, figure it out. You're professionals. You are, you know, wonderful players and you've got to be able to figure it out in this, in this type of, uh, in this type of bubble. All right, Mossy. enough uh, of the bubble. As I said, starts Wednesday, I can't wait for it. I'm, I'm so excited for it to, uh, it, it to return and to be able to watch Major League Soccer again. Uh, we mentioned a little bit how NWSL continues to roll along with the Challenge Cup out there in uh, Utah. Plenty of wonderful goals, uh, wonderful, wonderful games, wonderful players. I think it is going as well as NWSL would have imagined. Plenty of attention. Uh, some of it Obviously, uh, with with what went on off the field and the Anthem situation, um, being on big CBS, all of that kind of stuff. I think that so far, so good when it comes to the NWSL from a health and safety perspective, very, very few, if any, problems. And most of them have been relative to just injuries actually on the field and that kind of stuff. Uh, You still have the courage, which is, you know, a, a juggernaut of, of a team. And like I said, the cream of the crop and a team that has been able to transfer that form that they have in a normal situation to this unique situation, which says a lot about the coaching and which says a lot about uh, the players, three wins in their, uh, in their three matches, anything NWSL Mossy, before we move on. Yeah. From what I can gather, it's been a uh, very successful. MLS can only
2: hope to be uh for its tournament to go as smoothly as the NWSL one is going so far.
1: Absolutely. 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 They have uh, and, and once again, I'll end it with this, the men and women, okay, that have organized these tournaments, uh, whether it's NWSL or whether it's down in Orlando and, you know, I've spoken to people down in Orlando. There are people down there that are doing not just their job, but, other types of jobs, all right? Your, your job description gets thrown out the window. That's why I said this is all hands on deck. And there is staff that has been down weeks before to make sure that it is as good as it can possibly be and are working their asses off to put this together. And this is unprecedented, all right? There's no, there's no template. There's no, you know, there, there, there's nothing that they can reference either in history or in their history. And they are down there doing that. And so, uh, as I mentioned uh, at, at the top of this segment, I want to thank, thank everybody that, that, that is doing this and that is down there and is working for their league, for their team, um, and for their sport. And it, it does make a difference. And um, I hope that people are uh, staying safe. And I just want to make sure that they, they understand that they are praised and they are appreciated for everything that they are doing and that they will continue to do as these teams leagues and ultimately sports come back online because it's not just limited uh to soccer all right mossy uh we're going to take a little break here and when we come back uh, we're going to talk some epl and some europe all sorts of different things that are going on
0: over there all right moving on
1: All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to go right to England, Mossy, and we're going to go right to the gift that keeps on giving. Let's be honest, Jose Mourinho, right? <laughs> a legend, both in terms of his managerial and coaching prowess, but also a legend in terms of the sound bites and the narrative that he continues to churn. He is a uh, he is a lightning rod. He is a manager that as many people love as loathe, and when it comes to expressing his, his opinion and oftentimes his reaction to things that have happened on the field, he never fails to deliver. And as was the case again this weekend with his Spurs team and the VAR part of the game. Uh, give, give folks a little synopsis of what happened and then we'll get into <laughs> the ridiculousness of it.
2: Well, in the first half of Tottenham's 3-1 defeat to Sheffield United, when they were trailing 1-0, they scored an equalizer, Harry Kane, and the goal was uh, wiped out by a handball, Lucas Moura, in the build-up to the goal. The AR spotted it, uh, so they, they wiped the goal away. And Wodinger went on something of a rant afterwards about it. And to be fair, he raised two issues that many others have raised as well, which I'll throw out to you. First off, I've heard a lot of people say, look, if the VAR – tells the referee on the field, hey, you need to take a look at this play again because something might have happened here. The referee runs over to a monitor, sees it, and he decides to change the call. I've heard players and managers say they can live with that, but they find it problematic when the referee on the field just trusts the VAR official uh, and there's something about that blind faith they don't like, they would prefer to have decisions in the game ultimately determined by the referee on the field. Do you think that's a fair criticism of VAR? If you were playing in a game, would you find it a little weird that somebody that's not there that you can't communicate with, that you can't get a real explanation for why they made the call they made is, is ultimately making these decisions?
1: I understand what they're saying, but really what, you're, what they're saying is, we would rather have performance art to make us feel better because that's what it would be, okay? If you just feel better because the referee runs over to the screen, fine, but that's just, a, that's just an act of doing it, okay? That, that is just going to make you feel better. I have no problem with them trusting their colleagues, okay? And by the way, their colleagues with however many cameras you have, so that many more types of angles and that much more informed on a situation than just the two eyes of the person that was on the field. Look, the, the VAR situation, first off, the, the VAR situation in this particular moment, let's just f- state it out there, it was not a wrong call, okay? You may have a problem with VAR, but your problem really is with the laws. If you wanna change the laws, have at it, no problem with that. But to get angry at either the person on the field or indirectly the people off the field or directly the people off the field because they made a correct call that you just don't happen to like, that's ridiculous. The whole point of VAR was let's get the call right, okay? And I know there's a lot of talk about clear and obvious when it comes to this. The reason why it is clear and obvious is because of the technology that these men and women upstairs or in another room or in another city are, have at their disposal, that they can see it, that it, may took, that it may take multiple looks or multiple angles, okay? It doesn't change the fact that there is clear and obvious evidence that this is a wrong call or this is a right call, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, it, it, it is out there, so look, if you want to change the law in, in when it comes to the the handball uh, law then 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 go ahead. but
2: it, it... well, that is the second issue. Uh, so recently they did make this change to the handball rule, where mind you, for a defender, there's still an interpretation there and whether the hand was in a natural position and the silhouette and all the rest. But for an attacking player. They removed any sort of gray area. If the ball hits the hand of an attacking player and the build up to a goal, it's not a goal. And we saw the Tottenham goal waved off. We also saw it didn't matter because City were winning 4-0 anyway. But in their 4-0 win over Liverpool in the last play of the game, had Matez scored a goal to make it 5-0. That got wiped away because of uh, the ball hit the hand of a City player in the build up to the goal. And I, a lot of people, especially attacking players like Gary Lineker, uh, they didn't like that rule change. They feel like there's an inconsistency there, and that it's it's harsh on attacking players. So, what do you make of where we stand with the handball rule right now?
1: As I said before, just make it if it hits your arm or your hand, it's a foul. All right, that's it, clear cut. Then we just we we look at it, and if it happens, it happens. But here's the other thing: when someone like Mourinho, okay, the coach of Spurs, points to this moment how fragile, okay, and whether he realizes it or not, how fragile he looks as a coach. If this, if this result was predicated all on this moment happening, because this had nothing to do with tactics. This had nothing to do with coaching or managerial acumen, okay? This was one of those things that it's going to go either way. You're not, you're not training for this moment, to have the guy fall down, hit off his arm, fall to Harry Kane, and have Harry Kane score the goal, all right? This is, this is, just, seren- this is just serendipity. So to, to feel aggrieved as a coach because this perfect star alignment that you have nothing to do with when it comes to coaching didn't or did happen, that's a little rich for me, Mossy.
2: Yeah, I think the larger issue here is if you look at the proverbial big six in England, Uh, Liverpool and City are juggernauts. Uh, There's tremendous excitement surrounding Manchester United and Chelsea. Even Arsenal are showing signs of progress under Arteta and there's some room for optimism there. And then you have Spurs who not long ago were in the Champions League final moving into a new stadium and it's Unbelievable how stale it's gotten so quickly. It already uh, felt stale early on the season under Pochettino. And then in my opinion, they've doubled down on the staleness by bringing in Jose Mourinho, who is already cutting this depressed figure. Uh, he, he already gave this interview recently in this tone of resignation about how they're not going to spend any money this summer. He was talking about the money that Chelsea are throwing around and buying Werner and Ziyech. And he said, well, we're not going to be able to do anything like that. It's going to be more or less the same roster for us next season. So there's already this sort of vibe there that, you know, and then you throw this VAR thing on top of it. I mean, Mourinho already... it sort of brought that sort of toxic vibe that he's just
1: just when you think they they couldn't get any more stale (laughs) they are more stale all right so then that brings us to the question we'll finish it here when it comes to jose has the game passed him by uh because we know this is this is his shtick this is what he does this is what you pay for but oftentimes he's coupled it still with winning albeit some very ugly winning at times but you, you you know what you are you are getting
2: I've said this before, and 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 then we can transition to his uh, former club, Manchester United. But uh, I'll say it, last thing for Mourinho on Tottenham, Where I think we're headed is, if he spends the next two or three years there, he is going to win a secondary trophy somewhere along the way, like a League Cup or a Europa League. Mm -hmm. And then Mourinho Devoltes will argue that Pochettino won nothing. Mourinho won something. So by definition, he was better. While others are going to point out that in the two competitions that really matter, the Premier League and the Champions League, Spurs finished second in the Premier League under Pochettino and got to a Champions League final. I don't think Mourinho is going to come close to that in those competitions. And so how can you say he was better? And so uh, wherever you land in that, I would start getting your arguments ready because I can just smell it. I think that's where we're headed. Two, three years from now, we're going to be arguing the value of winning a League Cup versus not having won anything, but have come close in the competitions that really matter.
1: What has the grumpy old man routine gotten old and stale for you? I know the the the, the play is stale, but him uh, for me, it hasn't. I still I still love him. I watch. <laughs> it's not it's not stale. It is it is one. Speaking of performance art, it's wonderful performance yeah, art for yeah. me, and I don't I don't mind it.
2: For me it has gotten stale. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think earlier in his career there was more of a charm to it, there was more of a wit and now he just cuts this sort of... That's fair. That's, fair.
1: That's fair. All right, well let's uh, move on to a team that once was stale and not anymore? Question mark? Not anymore? I mean is this, is this for real Mossy? Are they no, coming I, out? I
2: am all in on Manchester United. Love what I'm seeing from them. They were playing great uh, before the play was halted. And, and and the big question mark coming back for me was whether he could get Pogba and Bruno Fernandez to play well together in the same midfield. And he's done that. And they have this... Uh, And by he, I mean Sochar. And they have this very exciting young front three with Martial, who's really, really come good, uh, Rashford, and then Mason Greenwood, who is another talented English player to burst on the scene. It's amazing how England have been pumping out players the last few years. There's now like different waves of them. You have the initial wave was like Rashford and Sancho and Alexander-Arnold, and you can even throw Phil Foden into that. And now you have like this the second wave of like Greenwood and Saka. You even have guys like Sterling and Deli Alista who are only in their mid twenties. So. England are well-stocked for the next few major tournaments, the next couple of World Cups. I think they're going to be contenders to, to, to really win uh, the next couple of World Cups. They already got to the semifinal in 2018. So that's part of the story, too. We can talk about it, how much young talent England have. But, yeah, United benefiting from the emergence of Greenwood alongside Rashford and Martial. And you still might throw Sancho into this mix, which is like, my God, how much young attacking talent can you have? So there's still work to be done there. They need to make a, another couple of signings this summer, I think, to get up to that city Uh, Liverpool level, but they are on their way. I think Manchester United are really on the right track again. How much,
1: I guess, for lack of a better word, credit does Ole Gunnar Solskjaer deserve in that, is this just a natural type of progression? And (laughs) I mean, because it'll be framed as patience. And while everyone was screaming and yelling, we just, we were patient and we believed in it and we, we, uh, you know, we kept the course and did, did all that. Is, is that. is that true? Is that fair? Or would, have, would this have happened regardless? Or if somebody else had come in, would it have happened quicker? No, I have to say,
2: I give him a lot of credit. I think he's proven to be the, the right manager there. I had my doubts, but he, he really is doing a terrific job. Uh, the way these young players are coming along and like I said, the way he's figured out way to get the best out of Pogba alongside Bruno Fernandes in that midfield. So uh, no, they're they, they are playing exciting football. It's it's good times uh, for Manchester United. Now, I mentioned Sancho and Phil Foden. I do want to make a point about that, uh, if I may. Yeah. Jadon Sancho and Phil Foden played together in the Manchester City youth system. And we know how difficult it can be for uh, young English players to get on the field for these big Premier League clubs, particularly City. Sancho decided he didn't want to deal with that. So he went to Dortmund. It's worked out great for him. He's played regularly the last two seasons, blossomed into a star. Uh, under normal circumstances this summer, he would have been like a hundred million million euro player. It might not be that much because of the pandemic. While well, Foden chose the other route to stick it out, to learn under Pep, to trust that his time would eventually come. And I must admit, at, at different times in the last couple of years, that Foden sat on the bench, I was one of those people that questioned that decision and held up Sancho as an example and why not do what he did. Uh, and there are others like Arlo White that said, no, uh, Foden is doing the right thing. And I have to say, we've reached a kind of inflection point now with Phil Foden, where he's clearly ready. And if Pep goes out and buys a couple of midfielders this summer and Foden is still struggling to get on the field regularly next season, I think we can conclude that it was a mistake to stay, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. He's gotten a nice run of games the end of this season. He's playing very well. And I think this is going to carry over into next season. He's going to have a big role to play next season, starting fairly regularly and is going to emerge as one of the best midfielders in the Premier League. I love Phil Foden. I think he's a major talent. And and if things play out the way I think they're going to play out, then I I have to say he is kind of vindicated. I mean, him and Sancho chose different paths, but you could say that it kind of worked out for both of them, and they're going to intersect next season, perhaps, as being two of the big stars in the Premier League.
1: Yeah, but, but Jaden Sancho, in a strange way, in a mirrored way, benefited from being a different nationality in the Bundesliga. So what I'm saying is to your point, if, if Pep goes out and buys a bunch of new players and Foden doesn't play, is it because he's not as good as the new players or is it because of his nationality?
2: Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think, Listen, he's ready right now. There's no doubt in my mind if Phil Foden was like a regular week in, week out starter for City next season, he'd, like I said, be be blossom into a star, be one of the best midfielders in the Premier League. So if Pep still feels the need to go out and buy a couple of flashy foreign midfielders and and, and they play ahead of him, I think it does speak to this mentality, this reluctance to give young English players a chance that that would really bother me because I don't need to see any more from this kid to know that he is absolutely ready right now. And to me, it would just be stubbornness on their part if they're not ready to sort of hand the keys to him. And and, and David Silva is leaving this summer. He's out of contract. So, I mean, to me, the, the, the future is now for Phil Foden. So I, I really and by the way, if, if I'm right and he gets on the field regularly for City next season and, and plays well, then he's going to likely carve out a big role for England. I, he could be starting in that England midfield by the next World Cup in 22. I really believe that. I'm, I'm a massive, massive Phil Foden Fan. Well,
1: England's going to be loaded, like you said. A lot of good players, which means they're definitely going out in the group stage. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's transition over here to La Liga. Uh, La Liga continues to roll along. <laughs> Anytime you talk about La Liga, you start off with one of two things, and we're going to start off with Barcelona. Go ahead, Mossy. What do you what do you got to say about Barcelona?
2: Well. I'll I'll mention Barcelona in the context of Real Madrid because Real Madrid are inching towards the title. I said on this podcast uh, a couple weeks ago that neither one of these teams was good enough to rip off several victories in a row. Real Madrid have won seven out of seven since the restart. So that's the kind of analysis you get on the State of the Union pod here. Uh, (laughs) But their latest victory was 1-0 over Athletic Bilbao uh, on a penalty that was earned after a VAR review. VAR has also been a big theme in Spain. Real Madrid have benefited from some calls here, so Barcelona folks are sort of already drumming up conspiracy theories. But nevertheless, uh, Real Madrid are four points clear with four rounds remaining, and they have the tiebreaker. I will say, though, Barcelona kind of saved the match point this weekend because they took the field against Villarreal seven down. If they had lost or drawn that game, it would have been completely over. And instead, I'll give them credit. They stepped up. They turned in a big time performance. Setian made a tweak in the formation. He started Messi as kind of a traditional number 10 behind Suarez and Griezmann. It worked. They all combined very well, scored some beautiful goals. They won 4-1. And so it's probably a little too late for La Liga. But in thinking in terms of the Champions League, Barcelona might have found something here formationally. Keep in mind, this is all occurring against the backdrop of this Messi story that broke this week, which... Initially it was a radio station that reported it, but other reporters uh, who I trust have kind of backed it up. So I think it's real. And the story goes that Messi has halted negotiations on a contract extension with Barcelona. His contract runs out in the summer of 21. Barcelona are going to have presidential elections uh, between now and then. And he kind of wants to wait and see what happens and who wins and what the overall direction of the club is before he decides to pledge his future to them, which uh, is fascinating. Uh, keep in mind, the guy who's the president now can't run again, but presumably somebody from his camp will run. And then there's this opposition candidate who's already announced who Xavi has aligned himself with. So people think one of the reasons Xavi hasn't taken the coaching job yet is because uh, a big part of this guy's campaign is going to be, I can deliver Xavi as the coach. And so Xavi doesn't want to undercut that by taking the job already while this regime is in place. So There's this whole political thing uh, swirling around Barcelona right now, which could impact Messi's future. And in the meantime, here they are trying to still win a La Liga title and the Champions League title this season.
1: Wow, all right, so two questions. One, Setien, do you think he ultimately retains his job uh, or is he just a lame duck right now unless they win Champions League or something like that?
2: Yeah, unless something really out out of the ordinary happens, I don't think he's long for that job, no.
1: Do you think Messi cares? Um will he show him to the parking lot and
2: <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I don't think Messi uh cares much about Setien's future. Uh, I think Messi is concerned more with the transfer business they've done the last few years. And there's a lot of talk at Barcelona that, you know, it's that old thing that comes up when, 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 when clubs are struggling that like we need more football people making the decisions. And, mm-hmm. and, and so this, this opposition candidates whole thing is that I'm going to bring in Xavi as a coach and guys like Puyol uh, for the front office. And we're going to have football people making football decisions. And so I don't know where Messi's head is at with that, but if, if he buys into that, then he's going to sort of wait around and see if, if this opposition candidate wins and if, if things unfold the way, you know, some of his former teammates are making the decisions, he might feel better about that than the people that are in charge right now.
1: Well, take it from me, sometimes football people are the dumbest people in the room. <laughs> all right, my last question then uh, would be, and this is a, an evergreen type of question, with all of this talk, uh, when Messi does something like this, inevitably people start talking about the what if. Do you ever in your wildest dreams see Leo Messi in anything but a Barcelona jersey?
2: I think there's a much better chance than not that he stays. But I think he is so disillusioned with that Barcelona front office that it's at least opened the door slightly for him to leave at some time in the next couple of years. And then the question would be, would he seek out another big European club or would he be ready at this point to move on to a different phase of his career, which could mean inter-Miami, which could mean going back to Argentina, playing for Newell's Old Boys, something like that. So that'd be sort of the question if he were to leave, which I don't think is going to happen, but that would be the question that he would have to decide.
1: Speaking of bubbles, he'd have to, you know, bust out of that bubble and that cocoon that he has been living in for so long. It's a wonderfully warm and productive type of co- cocoon out there. So, all right, Mossy. anything else?
2: Well, let me just end on Syria, which by the way, Alex Dowd uh, has left out of the rundown the last three weeks. I had to beg for it to get put in this week. Alex Dowd has some issue with Italian football. Doesn't there.
1: like it. He doesn't like Italy. He doesn't yeah, like the, doesn't the entire like country of Italy. That's it.
2: Well, what happened this weekend, Juventus hammered Torino 4-1, Well, Lazio and Inter both lost. Lazio got drilled by AC Milan, while Inter uh, lost uh, at home to Bologna. And so what that means is Juventus have opened up a seven-point lead over Lazio, 11-point lead over Inter. And, you know, I was thinking about this the last couple of days. You know, Serie A folk like Matteo Bonetti have spent so much energy the last few months trying to sell you on the fact that Lazio and Inter were legitimate contenders to Juve. Mm-hmm. And now it looks like Juve are not only going to win a ninth straight Serie A title, but might actually win it by a comfortable margin. And my first instinct is to kind of roll my eyes at that. But then I'm self-aware enough to take a step back and say, that's exactly what we've sounded like the last six months with Dortmund and Leipzig yep. challenging Bayern. So I think folks that cover those two leagues right now are just uh, struggling to accept like what those leagues are and you know you just want somebody else to win it and wishful thinking is masquerading as analysis right now and right. we're trying to talk ourselves into these other teams and then invariably you end up disappointed at the end well, of the season uh, yeah
1: well i love the fact that uh, your first initial reaction was to find somebody to criticize and ridicule and make fun and <laughs> uh, make fun of uh, not surprising but uh, but then you know your your bigger self came into play and you understood that in essence you know, you would be pointing right back at not only you, but all of us uh, that, are, that are just dying for it to be broken up, whether it's in Serie A, whether it's in, in the Bundesliga. That's what makes leagues fun. That, that parody that, to be quite honest, doesn't exist in a lot of places uh, out there. But when it does exist, it makes it that much uh, more interesting. Nobody wants to see somebody run away with it. Even if it's your team, you want to be challenged. Um, and it makes it for a better viewing experience uh, going forward. But it doesn't look like there's a, an end in sight right now, and certainly the usual suspects when all is said and done at the end of uh, this season are standing, uh, standing again. All right, uh, that's it from uh, over there in Europe. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking all sorts of different things in our Ask Alexi segment using that hashtag Ask Alexi. All right, don't go away. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi or Ask Masi out there, and you send us some questions or comments and concerns out there, and we go and pick them off of the uh, social media platforms. And uh, what do we got this week, Mossy? What do the people want to know or talk about this week?
2: Uh, first up, at UK Footy 2019, Christian Pulisic is doing well over here. Are there any more U.S. talent we should be aware of?
1: So, I mean, I think this is relative to the next move of a player to the EPL. Uh, and right now the, the traditional stepping stone, if you will, is to go to the Bundesliga uh, and then to go to the EPL, and that's certainly what, or certainly the path that someone like Christian Pulisic has blazed. There's been others in the past that have done it, but certainly not to the extent uh, and with the fanfare that Christian Pulisic has. I think the next one in line, if you will, to consider that move or to be considered for that move from others would be someone like Weston McKinney. He obviously is one, if not the best player on Schalke, a team that struggles. I think he he would be open to it, and I think Schalke would be open to it. It just, as we've said before, remains to be seen what that price is on Weston McKinney. Uh, Given the the challenges, both in the practical challenges of work permits when it comes to uh, players over there and American players uh, over there, and just, we talked earlier about, how the culture and the conscience views players and the way that they view American players, and it's not very high, let's be honest, uh, it makes it that much more difficult for players to go directly there, which is why we're seeing this, this stopover, if you will, in the Bundesliga. And I'm not saying you can't have a long and productive career in the, in the Bundesliga and make plenty of money and be very, very successful. You look at someone like you know, Steve Terundolo. But the allure and the lure of uh, the EPL is strong and it's not fading anytime uh, anytime soon so uh, you know a guy like uh, weston mckinney who who very publicly has said that is one of his goals is to play the epl and i I completely get it you look at a guy like you know tyler adams right now is interesting because he's in that red bull system and we've seen timo Werner go now so that certainly could be something and while i don't think he said it very very publicly i would think that for tyler adams that is the end game is to get to the, the EPL. Now, just getting there for these players is, is one thing. Getting to a place where you're going to play and that is comfortable and that is not, and is not a sideways or backwards type of step because not all EPL clubs are created equally. That's, that's another thing. So they have to be very, very selective when it comes to, you know, for example, if the offers on the table for a Weston McKinney were – you can upgrade in the, in the Bundesliga. And let's say the money was the same. You can upgrade in the Bundesliga from going to Schalke, and you can go to a, you know, a higher, more prominent Bundesliga club. And you know, let's pick a, I don't know, let's pick RB Leipzig said, we want, we want Weston McKinney. And I don't know, give me a, give me a mid-level type, give me a, a mediocre to, to struggling type of team over in the EPL. I don't know, Crystal Palace or somebody, came up and said, we want Weston McKinney. Now, you're going to the EPL, you're playing in England, you're playing in the EPL, but is that a move that you want to make? And I'm not discarding the, the as I said, the cachet and how strong that is just for players to get to the, the EPL. But these are the types of decisions that are going to be made. But to answer your question, someone like Weston McKinney, without a doubt, would be, I think if you put your money that next potential move because the circumstances are such that I think it's in the cards and on the table right now for him. I don't know. Mossy, you got, you got anybody out there that uh, as Gio Reyna starts to progress, that could be a, another one. But right now, I think Weston McKinney much more so than anyone else.
2: Yeah. Of the guys that are in Europe already, I would say McKinney and Adams are next in line. Is there somebody in MLS like a Miles Robinson or somebody that screams at you Premier League potential that could potentially make the move from MLS straight to the Premier League and do well?
1: I mean, it's hard, you know. Once again, with the with the work permits type of situation, you know, a, a Jordan Morris uh, type of situation. We've talked about Miguel Almarone has done, and that pathway. And certainly, I think if you're, you know, a Pitti Martinez or something like that, you might be looking at that as as a possible trailblazing move that you can uh, that you can follow out there. But you know when it comes to american players like i said there's there's just realities as to the difficult nature of making uh, of they, of making that move right now and i don't see a lot of players that are just so good right now that they would immediately be it's not that they wouldn't be successful it's that it's much more so the way that they are looked upon and therefore if they are coveted by anybody out there and i don't think there's a lot of interest when it comes to players when it comes going to directly to the epl from mls uh, one player who made the move
2: from the Bundesliga to the Premier League and is now coming back to the Bundesliga is Leroy Sané, and that leads nicely into the next, uh, it's not really a question, it's a statement, but it enables okay. us to talk about one of the great bits of news from the last week. Uh, at BW Homes 3 uh, Bayern Munich got Leroy Sané, and I couldn't be happier, so I'm presuming this is a Bayern Munich fan.
1: Has his, has his time abroad been a failure, if you look at Leroy Sané?
2: No, I I would say it just got derailed by injury, uh, which you look at this transfer fee, and there's two ways to look at it. Uh, Last summer, Bayern were reportedly offering like 100 million euros. City said no, they held on to him. He gets injured during the community shield, doesn't contribute at all this season. And now they're selling him for half the price. So City have been mocked by that and how terribly they played this whole thing. But if you look at it just in the context of this summer, and you consider the fact that Leroy Sané would have been entering the last year of his contract. He wanted to leave. He's coming off a major injury, and we are dealing with this sort of pandemic market. 50 million euros with add-ons that are probably going to take it up to 60 million euros is actually not a terrible amount for City to get for him right now. I will say, though, from Bayern Munich's perspective, it is a phenomenal move. If he stays healthy, he's going to just absolutely tear it up, serving up balls for Lewandowski next season. I think this is Bayern's big move. Uh, They would love to get Kai Havertz, but... They're, they're hoping that Leverkusen hold on to him for another year because they don't want to sell him uh, below value because of uh, the, the, the pandemic market mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And so they're, they're hoping that Leverkusen hold on to him for another year. And then next summer, that would be their big move to try to get Kai Havertz. And the other interesting part of this whole story, is I mentioned last week, that the way for these Bundesliga clubs to compete with Bayern is they're going to have to become destination clubs and convince players to stay. Rumeniga kind of said the same thing Uh, He twisted the knife a little bit on Schalke because remember Leroy Sané is a Schalke player left to go to City and now he's ending up back in the Bundesliga with Bayern and Rummenigge was sort of uh, uh, musing on like boy look at all the players that have come through Schalke in the last 15 years Neuer, Ozil, Gundogan, Sané, Goretzka, Meyer, Matip and he said you know if they had held on to all those guys they probably could have competed with us and won Bundesliga titles but they didn't so you know it's a little bit of an obnoxious
1: observation by
2: the Bayern Munich chairman but nevertheless he made it.
1: Yeah. And that's, it's easy to spend or save other people's money from the out, <laughs> from the outside. Well, maybe Mossy, maybe it's that Leroy Sané, maybe Leroy Sané just wants to play Champions League soccer and he's hedging his bets right now. You know, I mean, uh, that is,
2: <laughs> no, no, that's, that's no. Uh, uh, we
1: don't yeah. know what's going to happen with that. So uh, it, it's, it's going to be interesting and there's a, 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 judgment, I guess, or a, a a ruling that's going to come out here very soon. That's going to tell us if uh, Manchester city is going to be involved in champions league uh, going forward. So we'll see with that. Uh, one more of these, right? Uh, there's one more uh, ask Alexi. What yeah, do we got we'll
2: end on this? Uh, this is a fellow, by the way, Alex Goldstein 87 who mm-hmm. tweets questions constantly at me. And I, I do my best to answer all of them. I mean, it's a lot. He he, he, he tweets me a lot with questions And this was the most recent one he asked. And I hadn't gotten around to answering it yet. But luckily, Alex Dowd threw it in the rundown this week. So Alex Goldstein, if you're listening, this sort of counts as my answer to this question. I'm not going to also answer it on Twitter. So uh, at goldstein 87 asked, which international league, I think he means region, which international region do you see winning a World Cup first? CONCACAF, Africa or Asia, which country from each respective league do you see winning a World Cup first? Hashtag ask Mossy, hashtag pergunta Mossy, which means ask Mossy in Portuguese.
1: Ooh, nice. Um, Okay, so I I, I think we've had this. uh, We haven't, but I've heard this question before, and it's an interesting one. Obviously, all three confederations, while sending teams for years and years to the World Cups, have never even really come close to winning a World Cup. I think if if I had to put my money on it, I'm going to put my money on Africa. I mean, I think they have more teams that are capable of doing something magical. Okay, and that's and that's what you need. Okay, it's not as if there's a golden generation that uh, is going to do it. Um, just it, uh, just walk through a tournament. They're going to have to have all of the stars aligned, and you have more teams out there that have consistently showed glimpses. That they could catch fire and do something, and you have your usual su- uh, suspects, whether it's you know Ghana and uh, Nigeria, but you know over the years, you know teams like Senegal and teams, uh, uh, you know Ivory Coast and different teams, uh, whether it's Algeria or Egypt, are these types of teams that are, that have come through. So I would say that yeah, Africa I would see first, second, it's a. It's a toss-up between the two. I mean, look, when you're talking about CONCACAF, not, you know, notwithstanding the fact that the U.S. didn't qualify for the last World Cup, I would still say that with history, you're looking at the United States and Mexico as potentially catching fire and doing something. You might throw a... No, I'm not going to throw anybody else in there. So that's those two. And one of those teams didn't even qualify for the last World Cup. It doesn't mean they, you know, they can't go on and do great things at the next World Cup, but... That's legitimately two, and then when it comes to uh, Asia, right? Was the uh, the other one that we were talking about? Yep. I mean, jeez. I mean, yeah. I mean, I would. So I would put. Yeah, I would still put it, Africa, Asia, CONCACAF, as much as it hurts me to say, but 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 as I said before, these teams would have to have the the perfect group setting. They would have to have everything go their go their way. A, you know, a red card here or, you know, a, an own goal here. Uh, they would, you know, they would have to have that perfect pathway to it and then catch lightning in a bottle, like I said. So, yeah, that's that's who I would say if I had to put money on it. I'm what about you, Mossy?
2: I'm going to take a more macro view of this question. Okay. One of the great paradoxes is that soccer... Uh, When you look at the the randomness of an individual soccer game, you would think that any knockout competition soccer would sort of lend itself to to Cinderella teams winning or at least having a chance so they get hot and bounces go their way. And yet in the 90-year history of the World Cup, we have never had anything even resembling like a Cinderella champion. Uh, only eight nations have won the World Cup, right. Brazil, Germany, Italy, Argentina, Uruguay, who won it when they were an absolute powerhouse in the first half of the 20th century, won it twice. France, who have won it twice, Spain and England. And if you look at the circumstances in which each of those countries won it, it they were like one of the best teams. And in England won it at home. Spain won it in 2010 when they were the best team and the favorites going in. France won it at home in 98. And then again, uh, the last one. And so I just the way I interpret this question is, I don't think you're, a country is just gonna get hot and win it sort of out of nowhere. I think winning a World Cup will be the natural consequence of become emerging as one of the elite soccer nations. So if you look at all the different countries in CONCACAF, in Africa, and Asia, it's like which one has a realistic chance to, at some point in the future, emerge as one of the elite, elite nations in this sport. And I have to say, I'm not just pandering, I would say it's the United States. I think there's the most upside there, the most runway still. I, I feel the greater sense of like, if, if all each of these countries gets it completely right, like, what does that look like? And I think in the United States case, it does look like someday down the road in the future, there's no guarantee the US is going to get there. But there is a world in which the US completely figured out how to maximize its potential here uh, as a soccer nation in which the US emerges as one of the elite countries. And then that day, you could think about, you know, winning World Cup. So uh, I would go with the U.S. That's, that's
1: the most beautiful thing I've ever heard you say, Mossy. <laughs> it, it warms the cockles of not just my red-headed heart, but my red, white, and blue American heart. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, that is, that is wonderful. Anything else for, uh, from Ask Alexi? Uh, no, that is it. All right. Well, we come to the end of yet another show here. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. And obviously, this past weekend was uh, July 4th, uh, Independence Day. Uh, happy birthday to the United States, uh, a country I uh, love uh, and a country that I feel is the greatest country uh, in the world, not without problems uh, and not without uh, challenges. But I think back to July 4ths of, of the past, um, and you know, one of them looms large in July 4th, 1994, uh, obviously the summer of the USA World Cup uh, that yours truly was a part of. On July 4th, up in Stanford in Northern California, uh, we played Mossy's Brazil, right? It's really Mossy's USA and Mosse's Brazil, but we played Brazil, uh, a Brazil team that went on and uh, won the World Cup in 1994. It was what to, was to be the last game of our little adventure when it comes to the United States uh, national team. We ended up losing 1-0 on a uh, goal from the great Bebeto. Uh, and we left the tournament. But we left the tournament with our heads held high. And there's, there's certain things from that day that I remember. Um, obviously, it was an epic type of day being July 4th. Uh, huge Brazilian audience, huge United States audience and you know the the game was and we you know there 's a whole lot of things that we could talk about, including Ta Bremos getting knocked out and uh that that whole moment. but I also think about after the game <laughs> the the post game party up uh up there, and so my one for the road for this is to tell you about that post game party, which was full of, of so many different people and all walks of life. And, you know, as we, as we mentioned, we were done in that tournament. So there's an element of sadness in that this run has come to the end, but also an element of incredible and immense pride for what we had left and what we had had done for the game. We knew that we had done something that was good, that was positive. <laughs> and, it, and we also knew that going into the tournament, we could have really, you know what, the bed. and and not put ourselves and our sport in the best light. And so this after party was, we were commiserating that we had done, but it was much more about a celebration of everything that had happened. And not just it happened on the field, but everything that had happened so far in that World Cup and how our country and culture had changed because of that uh, World Cup. I vividly remember the late, great Robin Williams coming into our part of this, we had booked out this big, restaurant and our part of the restaurant coming in and talking to us uh, and telling us how proud he was and how much he loved watching us. I vividly remember that. I also vividly remember (laughs) after we had finished eating, we all went out to the bar, which was what we normally did. Um, And I remember moseying up to the bar and being surrounded on both sides by two members of Metallica, and doing shots of tequila and Jägermeister with James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich from, uh, uh, from Metallica. And for, for me, after having gone through this incredible adventure and, and wonderful uh, things that had happened during the World Cup, that for me was a memory that I will never ever forget. It was a, a wonderful way to kind of <laughs> end my tournament because my my life would never be the same after that so there's your one for the road uh, we had more than one by the way for the road we had plenty more that was back bef- back when they were they were drinking but uh i've forgotten a lot about the 90s a lot of it is it is hazy but i distinctly remember that moment when you know having grown up listening listening to metallica uh I was flanked on either side by members of Metallica doing shots and celebrating the game and celebrating life. It was despite the loss that day and despite the fact that we exited the tournament, it was still a very, very good day. Mossy, anything to say to the folks before we head off into the uh, great Louis Yonder? I mean, you brought it up.
2: So one quick thought on that game. You know, Romario has a lot of players have changed their games as they've gotten older, Mm -hmm. but Romario... Uh, hung on for so long that that this the second part of his career that became the image of him as a player and when you ask anybody to describe Romario as a player you get this sort of second part of his career description which is a guy that wasn't all that involved was just kind of a a crafty goal scorer who was in the periphery of the game would just pop up and score goals. And people forget that there was a whole first part of his career where Ramar was a much more explosive, dynamic player than people realized when he first came up with Vasco. And all those years with PSD, and even that 93-94 campaign with Barcelona, where he would drop back deep, pick up the ball and go on these darting runs and you, it's, you bring up that very goal. I mean, that, that's how that goal came about. He picked up a ball in the midfield and went on this, this darting run and blew past a couple defenders and rolled it across to Bebeto to score. And so I've always thought that 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 Romario has been kind of lost in history a little bit. People now only remember that sort of in the box predator that just had a knack for being in the right place at the right time and was a really crafty finisher. But he was... A fantastic all-around striker. He did players. it, and he
1: did it multiple times in that game, and and for any center back, regardless. But in particular, for a center back that that, as I've said many many times, was not the fleetest of foot, it puts you in 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 a situation where you have to make a choice: do you follow him, or you just let him go? You know, the problem is if if you follow him, there's a huge space that opens up behind you, but if you don't, <laughs> he has the ability to get the ball, turn. And now it's not just Romario running at you, it's Romario running at you with space uh, and speed and deceptive speed. And so I got beat at different times in that game by doing both things. Once where I let him go and he would turn and run at me and even at times going with him because that opened up space uh, behind. But that's what, that's what great players do. They can beat you multiple ways. And we had our hands full with that team. We had our hands full from a defensive standpoint marking Romario and Babetto. You know that Babeto scored that goal should have been no surprise. They had plenty of opportunities. We did have some uh, some opportunities, but the better team won that uh, won that day. And look, you know, if uh, if you bomb out of a well, not bomb out of a world, if you exit a World Cup losing to the eventual champs, um, there's no there's no shame in uh, shame in that. And thankfully, we have gone on to much bigger and better things. But it was uh, it was. It was a wonderful time in my life and one that i think of fondly and that that day that july 4th game uh, people still talk about and people still ask me about all right mossy uh always a pleasure to hang with you my friend i hope uh, you and yours are doing well i hope everybody out there that is watching that is uh that is listening to the podcast is doing well that you're staying safe and that you are staying sane thank you so much for the downloading and the reviewing and the recommendations uh, and the subscribing that, uh, that goes on when it comes to the State of the Union pod. We thank you so much for, for hanging with us as we go through and muddle through all of these interesting times that we are living in. We will talk to you again next week. And as always, size the day.